Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's so good to be with you this morning. If you are watching this, then you are celebrating my favorite day of the year with us. Um, that day, obviously, is Resurrection Sunday. And so this video um, is being recorded actually on Wednesday, which is also another significant day on the calendar. So tonight at sundown, we will be entering into the Feast of Passover. And so when I think about the Feast of Passover, when I think about Resurrection Sunday and all the significance that is tied up into this really this entire week as we reflect on the week of passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and as we remember the death that he so graciously and willingly died in our place. And then we celebrate together as a church family on the Lord's Day, which is uh, Resurrection Sunday. We have so much hope and so many things to be thankful for, and I'm so very thankful to be able to bring a message of hope and encouragement to you this morning right here from Christ Church in Bartlett. Uh, we're so thankful that you are um, possibly streaming with us on YouTube or our Facebook page, and so I, um, I really struggle with uh, not being physically with my church family uh, on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, this is the first time in my life that I can remember not being with the body of Christ on Resurrection Sunday, but we are together in spirit. We uh, were the uh, spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is the presence of God, and we have the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God, and we're using this technology to make the most of uh, the, the current situation that we are in. And so I just want to thank you for joining us, and I'm excited about the message that I have for you today. Today my message is very simple. Um, I know that my Redeemer lives. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so foundational, so fundamental to our faith, as we will see here in just a few moments. But when I was thinking about why we're here in the first place, and, and with COVID-19 and the crisis, if you want to call it that, that we're facing as a nation and really as, a, as an entire world, the biggest thing that, that this whole crisis has revealed to me is that there is a spirit of fear that has really gripped our nation, it has gripped the world. And, and when everything boils down to um, what's happening right now, it really comes down to this, this fear. And furthermore, when you take it a step further, what are we afraid of? And ultimately, if, if, if we're all being honest, we're afraid of a virus, and we're afraid that this virus could possibly make us really sick, or it could it could kill us. We, we could die, potentially die from this virus. And so when, when I think about Resurrection Sunday and I think about where we are as a church right now and where we are as a nation, how things have, have so dramatically changed in our life in just the past month, this spirit of fear and really the spirit of fear of dying has come to the surface. It has come to the forefront of our lives because so many people, and, and, and it's understandable, no, none of us want to die. We, we all have this this, this natural fear of death, but this, this whole idea of being afraid to die, being afraid of catching this virus and dying, it really brings the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the forefront of our lives because I want to tell you today 
That in Jesus Christ we don't have to be afraid. That, that the love of God that He has poured out into our hearts has, has cast out all fear, and, and especially the fear of death. And so we're going to see today why the message of the resurrection is so very important, it's so very foundational, it is so fundamental to our faith, and it's so relevant to what we're doing today and what we're going through today as a nation and as a church. The Apostle Paul and really all of the apostles, if you think about their writings and their testimony, they went to their deaths, and we'll see that more in just a minute. They went to their deaths proclaiming this simple message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they were adamant and they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ, though he had been crucified and nailed to a Roman cross, even though they had laid his dead body in the ground, they were convinced that he was indeed alive, that he had been raised from the dead. And that was the central message of the church moving forward um, for the really, uh, from the beginning of, of the birth of the church until today. And, and that's the same message that we come proclaiming today. So I want you to know today that the resurrection of Jesus Christ dramatically changed the lives of the apostles, dramatically changed the early church. And I want to uh, contend with you this morning that it still can change you and me today as well. And it, and it should change us when we really consider that there are many valid reasons why we should believe in the resurrection. And, and that's really what I want to get down to in our message this morning is there are many valid and convincing reasons. It, our faith is a reasonable faith. It is a historical faith. There are many good reasons why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, what proof is out there that Jesus is indeed still alive today? I mean, that, that is the most significant question as a believer today. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, it changes everything. But the flip side is also true. If Jesus is still in the grave, if Jesus Christ never was resurrected from the dead, it changes everything. And so we're going to see seven reasons this morning as to why I believe in the resurrection, as to why I believe my Redeemer lives. And I hope that these reasons will either challenge your faith, they will encourage you. Maybe some of you watching this morning, you're seeking, you're wondering, you're asking, is this Christianity stuff, is it for real? You know, can I really believe that, that a man came back from the dead never to die again? And I'm telling you this morning that there are some wonderful proofs that we can look to in the scriptures and beyond that will help substantiate and solidify our faith in this one great historical event that we celebrate every year, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here, are, here they are, seven reasons why I believe in the resurrection. So reason number one is that the Old Testament prophets, okay, so we have to understand the progressive revelation of God that has been given to us from beginning from Genesis to, Revela to the book of Revelation, it unfolds and un unveils the truth of God's gospel. And we see it beginning to build and these pictures and these shadows and these predictions in the Old Testament all are pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So the first reason I want to share with you this morning is that the Old Testament prophets predicted and prefigured the resurrection. Now, there are some, uh, there's so many Old Testament passages that I could point to, but I want, I want to point out several of the 
uh, great prophets in the Old Testament and their, their personal testimony through their writings or their testimony that proved to us and, and, and should convince us that the resurrection was in the heart and was uh, the heart and the mind of God well before Jesus Christ ever was born into this world as a man. And so we're going to begin in the book of Job, chapter 19. They think uh, most scholars believe that the book of Job could, could be potentially the oldest uh, book in the Bible, representing one of the old patriarchs, obviously Job, potentially could have lived around the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at least that old. We don't know for sure, but Job is, is so interesting because he is one of the first ones that clearly speaks about the resurrection. And so in Job chapter 19, I'm going to begin reading in verse 23 this morning. Listen to what Job says. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, well guess what, Job? They were. Thank God they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So Job is saying, What I'm about to say should be engraved forever. It's so important that it should continue to be passed on from generation to generation. And then this is what he says. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, okay, at, at the last day, on the last day, He, my Redeemer, will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job is saying, I see in the distant future, I see that my Redeemer, He lives. And even in my flesh, in my resurrected body, even though I will die, this body will die and, cor and be corrupted and, and, and disintegrate in the ground. But one day this body will be resurrected and in my flesh, I will see my God and my Redeemer who lives. And so Job is one of the very first Old Testament prophets that begins to build upon this idea of resurrection. Now, then you have Abraham. Well, Abraham, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it's very interesting because as Abraham took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, which just happens to be the same mountain where Jesus was crucified, uh, there right outside of Jerusalem, listen to what it says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. 11 verse 17 it says by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up his son Isaac and he who had received the promises was in was in the act of offer, offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac your offspring will be named and so this was the greatest test of Abraham's faith as he had received a promise from God that Isaac would be his the heir of the son of promise that, that would eventually produced the next generation of uh, godly offspring uh, for the people of God. And yet at the same time, here the Lord is asking Abraham, are you willing to give me your only son? Are you willing as a father to sacrifice your only son? And of course, this is the picture of the heavenly father, our heavenly father, who was willing to give his only son, the Lord Jesus, to us. Now listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What does that mean? It means that Abraham was so uh, faithful to God, he had so much faith and trust in the Almighty, that he knew that even if he for some reason was allowed to actually take the life of his son, 
that he knew God was able to raise him back from the dead. So this is all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. And so we're beginning to see this picture of resurrection build. Then you have Moses himself. As we think about tonight, as Passover begins, it's sundown tonight. This is April the 8th. It's Wednesday. Uh, we think about the story of the Exodus and how God passed over the Israelites as they painted the blood on the doorpost of their houses to be saved from the wrath of God and so that the wrath would pass over them and they would be delivered. And through that great deliverance, they, they began to exit out of Egypt. And this is really the birth of the nation of Israel. And we see this beautiful picture of the Passover. We see the picture of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we see the, the picture of the Feast of first fruits. And even back then, in the days of Moses, as he gave them the appointed feast of the Lord, that there was a picture of resurrection. There was a picture of death, burial, and resurrection in the feast of Passover. What a fascinating uh, glimpse into uh, the future of the gospel as we see right there in the book of Exodus. Then you think about people like Elisha, the prophet Elisha, who he, he, uh, through him God raised the, the Shunammite's son, the, the son who had died he had some type of a head, an aneurysm or something, we don't know. And she calls Elisha and he comes and lays on top of the boy and he is raised from the dead. And so through the power of God, we see a picture of the resurrection in the person of Elisha. And then we move on to David, who also spoke very uh, frequently about the power of the resurrection. I think about in Psalm 22, which is really the, the one of the greatest... Um, prophecies, messianic prophecies in all of scripture that describes the details of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And at the end of Psalm 22, as, he, as, as David has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to describe the crucifixion of Jesus uh, about a thousand years um, before Jesus was ever even born, we see that at the end of Psalm 22, listen to what he says. He says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families and nations will worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. So now David has given us, given us this picture of death and being buried in the ground in the dust. But he, then he says, But posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So even in the midst of the picture of crucifixion, David has given us a glimpse that there will be resurrection. There will be life and prosperity and there will be generations yet unborn that will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is where we are today. And then, of course, in Psalm 16, which, which Peter quotes directly uh, in the book of Acts, he says, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is a messianic prophecy. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Of course, this applies ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that as Jesus' body was laid in the ground, this prophecy came to life because God did not allow the body of Jesus to decay in the grave. The Holy One did not see decay or corruption because He was resurrected from the grave. And then, of course, we have the book of Isaiah, which is, is one of the greatest 
passages in Isaiah 53 about the, again, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ took our sin upon him through the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds we are healed. And this is this wonderful messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53. But listen to what Isaiah says in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. After describing the death of Jesus, he says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and his soul makes an offering for guilt. But he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. It really reminds me of what Job was saying, that I will see in my flesh, I will see with my own eyes that my Redeemer lives. This is what Isaiah is saying here. He says, the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, I shall divide with him a portion for the many. And so again, in the book of Isaiah, all of these prophets are giving us glimpses. And again, this progressive revelation, because the Old Testament prophets are just, just uh, gradually revealing different um, aspects of the gospel. And so we begin to see this uh, message of hope and this message of resurrection that is being built throughout uh, the Old Testament, which really leads us into the second reason why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because once Jesus is born and he arrives on the scene and his ministry, his public ministry begins, I want you to focus in on that one key word. It was a public ministry. And I'm going to tell you why that's important. The ministry of Jesus was public and it was not done in secret. And this is very, very important. In other words, everything that Jesus said, just about everything that Jesus did, his life was on display. His life was out in the public. He, he didn't move around in secret, you know, a secret commune where he cut himself off from everybody. No, everything that he did could be examined by all of the religious leaders and all of the people of Israel of his day. As a matter of fact, that's what they spent most of their time doing. They were always examining the life of Jesus to see if they could find him in some type of a lie or catch him in some type of a trap. And so he, he put himself out there on public display. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Acts chapter 26. So Paul is, is standing before uh, Festus and King Agrippa, and this is what he says. He says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Again, I just read to you what the prophets and Moses predicted would happen. What did they predict? That Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So there's the gospel. And, and Paul is saying everything that was predicted in the prophets and prefigured from Moses and the prophets, that this must come to pass. Christ must suffer. He was crucified, but he was also would be the first to rise from the dead. And then this is what he says in verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. So King Agrippa, you know about these things. And to him I speak boldly. Now listen to what Paul says. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. 
That's a very interesting passage. And Paul is basically saying, listen, Festus, you know that what I'm saying is true. And King Agrippa especially knows that what I'm saying is true. Why? Because he has witnessed it just like everyone else has witnessed it. Jesus's life, death, his uh, burial, his resurrection, these things were done publicly. They were not done in secret. They were not done off in a corner somewhere. And this is very important because if you begin studying some of the skeptics that try to attack Christianity and, and try to attack the integrity of the gospel, you, you'll begin to see that, that many pagans believe that you know, Christianity is, is a copycat religion, that, that Christianity simply, the, you know, around the first century, uh, just began to borrow and copy some of the other pagan myths that, that preceded Christianity. And, and, and they'll try to tell you things like, there, you know, there were so many different pagan myths in Jesus' day and prior to Jesus' day that, that speak of the gods dying and being resurrected from the dead. And, and you'll hear things about the Egyptian god Osiris and Horus and this whole story of resurrection in, in ancient Egypt. And, and people will try to say that you know Christianity just borrowed and copied the same general story and then that's what we end up having today as the Christian faith, which is, which is really a bold-faced lie. There's no, there's no truth to those claims. And let me tell you why, because I'll give you an example. There's a pagan myth about the resurrection of this Roman god, Mithras. And, uh, you know, according to this pagan myth, you know, he, he died and he was resurrected and, you know, he was born of a virgin and all of these things that people say. You see, Christianity just borrowed from that. But in reality, when you look at the original sources and you go back to really research the truth about these pagan myths is that you cannot find any original sources about these pagan myths until about a hundred years or more after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's really the other way around. These pagan myths actually have borrowed from the Gospels. These pagan myths have borrowed from the biblical account of Jesus. And it's just the other way around. Again, that's just one way people will try to cast doubt into the integrity and the historical reliability of the gospel. I had a, one, a dear friend of mine one time, and he was kind of trying to convince me that, the, that Jesus wasn't really nobody special and that there had been other, you know, um, obscure accounts about gurus and religious leaders who had a cult following and and that they died and they were resurrected from the dead and, and he was trying to tell me that you know there was this one obscure ancient guru who you know had they were cave dwellers and he had a, a commune and he had a cult following and and the message behind his his whole life was that he died and apparently he was resurrected from the dead but think about it everything that that this obscure guru said and did was done in a corner it was done in secret. So there was no way to publicly or historically verify whether or not he was ever raised from the dead. And of course, we know that he wasn't because he's still dead today. We don't even know his name. And therefore, there's no reliability or validity to these, you know, these pagan myths and these, these alternative resurrection stories because nothing in history is like, <clears throat> excuse me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he had a public ministry. Everything he did was in the public view and being examined by um, the, the peers and the, his contemporaries of his day. That is unlike anybody else in history. Very good reason. Reason number three is that even the enemies of Jesus could not dispute the empty tomb. So I'm going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew right now. And I think these are just interesting insights that we can begin to to look at because you begin to see early on that the tomb was empty 
and the religious leaders of the day, they were even warned about this. And that's why they put Roman guards at the entrance to the tomb. And that's why they sealed the tomb and had guards standing by. Because in Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to begin in reading in verse 62. Listen to what it says. It says, The next day, um, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So now the religious Jewish leaders, they're coming to Pilate. And this is after Jesus has been crucified. And they said, Sir, we remember how the imposter, they call Jesus an imposter, that, that he said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And so they, they picked up on the, the gospel message that Jesus had proclaimed. He says, Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead and, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And so Pilate said, You have guards. Uh, put the soldiers and go make it as secure as you can. And so they sealed the tomb and they put the guards at the tomb. Now, if you continue reading, after the resurrection, I want to show you what um, is said here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest. So now the guards that, that were witnesses to the resurrection, they go tell the chief priest everything that had taken place, and when they assembled with the elders and they had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. As a matter of fact, you will even hear this today. There are all these other scenarios and skeptical um, explanations as to what happened to the body of Jesus. Uh, and, and you hear this even among the Jewish community today, that you know Jesus was nobody special, he was a false prophet, and you know the disciples just stole his body. But what's interesting is that what you see from the very beginning is that even the enemies of Jesus, the Romans, the, Jew, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they knew the tomb was empty. And what's even furthermore more interesting is that no one could produce a body you know, a body is not an easy thing to get rid of. And so they're, they're coming up, manufacturing a lie, fabricating this story, telling the soldiers, hey, spread the story among the Jews. And if, and if even it comes to the ears of the Romans, we'll protect you because the soldiers were at risk of losing their own lives for not being able to do their job. And so you begin to see these lies and these fabrications spread about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. But that's actually, that gives you actual more proof of the historical resurrection of Jesus because if there was a body to produce, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, surely somebody would have found someone else who knew that the body had been stolen and all they would have had to have done is produce the body of Jesus Christ and they would have silenced all of the uh, early church and the apostles. But no one could produce a body. You know what's interesting, just a side note, the burial of Jesus Christ is very important part of the gospel message too. That's why Paul says, and we'll see in just a minute, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why is it important about the burial of Jesus Christ? Well, the burial was also a well-known tomb. It was a public tomb because we know that Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the Sanhedrin, he was part of the religious leader, uh, the council of the day, he actually offered his own tomb. It was an unused tomb, uh, no one else had been laid in that tomb. It was a public tomb. 
And so what's important about that? Well, number one, Jesus wasn't just thrown into a mass grave with a bunch of other bodies where he would be indistinguishable from anyone else. That's important. Jesus was laid specifically in a public tomb that, that everyone else in the, in the city would have known. So therefore, they can go back to that tomb and check that tomb. And what did they discover? The, the testimony of the early church and of the apostles and even of the guards themselves is that the tomb was empty. So we see that even the enemies of Jesus bring credibility to the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fourth reason is then we get into the early firsthand eyewitness testimony of the apostles themselves. And this is what's so important. When we look at the Gospels, when we look at the epistles, when we look at the writings of Paul and Peter and John, we see some very interesting things. Number one, the, the testimony of the resurrection is early. In other words, the events of the resurrection and when, when, the, when the message of the gospel began to be shared and spread and written down throughout the uh, community there in Jerusalem and Judea and even un, unto the other parts of the Roman Empire, is that these messages were recorded and spread and shared very early. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because it would take at least, from a historical perspective, it would take at least two generations for an ancient, <clears throat> in the ancient world, for a legend to develop. Now, that's interesting. It would take at least two generations, so probably anywhere from 50 to 70 years would have to transpire before a legend could really be developed and people could kind of reinforce a myth or a legend. But what do we find when it comes to the scriptures? Well, it's interesting is that we have reports of the resurrection preserved in passages like 1 Corinthians 15 that we'll read here in just a minute which is one of the earliest creeds of Christianity, even the Gospel of Mark and, and the manuscripts and the copies of these Greek manuscripts that we have discovered date back very close within years of the actual events of Jesus' life. And why is that important? Because when you think about the early Christian writings and how they were so well preserved, there would have been no time for any legend or myth to develop. So what does that mean? It means that the early witnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, solidify and uphold the credibility that this message was not fabricated, this message was not a myth, but it was actually the true message of the early church. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15 because I think it's very important uh, that we, we hear what the Apostle Paul says concerning the eyewitness account, the early counts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm beginning in verse 3. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. We know where he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. This is significant. So again, everything that Jesus did was in public. It was not done in a corner. So his life was in public. His death was in public. His resurrection was in public. So he appeared to as many as 500 brothers and sisters, believers, at one time. That's important. And then most of whom are still alive. So as Paul is writing this, again, an early account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the gospel, he's saying, as I'm writing this, most of the witnesses who saw Jesus are still alive to this day. So why is that important? Because if he is telling a lie or if he's, if he's misrepresenting the truth, they would be able to counter that. They would be able to call him out on that 
but he's telling the truth and they can all confirm that. And that's what's so important here. He says, even though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so you have early testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you have eyewitness testimony. Why is it important? Because if you're going to call someone as a witness in a, in a murder trial or a criminal trial, you want eyewitnesses. You want people who saw it, that they were there. They had a, they had a perspective. Um, they, they saw, they heard, they, they, they felt the environment that was around them at that time. And, and you want to hear the witness testimony of people who were there firsthand. You don't, you don't want secondhand hearsay and those kind of things. And so why is it important that the Gospels are built upon firsthand eyewitness testimony? It's because the, the, the apostles like John and Peter, uh, and then you even have someone like, like Mark who got his... Uh, account from Peter, and you've got Matthew, you've got these apostles, and even Paul himself. Um, these were firsthand eyewitnesses to the life, the death, and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's read a couple of these firsthand accounts. I'm going to start with the apostle John, the beloved John. In John 20, as he, as he wrote his entire gospel about the Lord Jesus, listen to what he says in chapter 20. John 20 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying, listen, there's so many other things we can tell you about that Jesus did in our presence, but we're trying to, we're trying to stick to the foundation of the gospel and we saw him with our eyes. And then John goes on to say in 1 John chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son jesus christ he says we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete do you hear the language in john's epistle he's saying the things that we've seen with our eyes we've heard with our ears we've touched with our hands we see we've seen these we're witnesses to these things we testify to you we proclaim we're firsthand eyewitnesses, you can believe what we're saying is true. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do you hear what Peter's saying? He's saying, listen, we didn't follow these myths. We didn't come up and devise some type of story. Uh, he says, we were firsthand eyewitnesses to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Peter, again, is testifying how we ourselves, he says in verse 18 of 2 Peter 1, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's talking about the day that they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and he's saying, listen, I was there. I heard the voice from heaven. I'm a witness to these things, and so you can rely on me. You can count on what I'm saying to you is true. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul, we know, was an eyewitness because he uh, received a vision on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus came to him in his resurrected glory. He got Paul's attention. He radically changed Paul's life. And we'll see why that's important here in just a moment. 
And so those are some of the most compelling reasons is the early and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles that should validate and give you confidence that when you read the scriptures, this is not secondhand, thirdhand information. This is firsthand information from those who were there, who saw it, who heard it, who touched Jesus, who were with him, who saw him nailed to a cross, who saw his lifeless body be laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and spent time with him, up to 40 days with him after his resurrection. Now, let's build on that a little bit. Let's talk about the apostles' lives and their witness as we think about the apostles is that they were radically changed and they were willing to die for what they knew to be true. Now think about it. Remember what the, the chief priest and the Pharisees said as they paid the Roman soldiers. They said, listen, here's the story that you need to tell. Tell the people that the disciples came and stole his body and they're trying to perpetuate this whole idea that he's been raised from the dead. So this is the lie that the religious leaders of Israel began in the days of Jesus, in the days of the apostles. But we see that that does not line up with how the apostles were so radically changed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's remember, the, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus were scattered as he was arrested. Peter denied Jesus. Uh, they all went into hiding, being afraid for their own lives. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, they thought their whole life was over. They thought that the whole story was over. They, you know, they had so much doubt in their heart. It, it, could this be Jesus? He could be the Messiah. But when they see him nailed to a cross and they see his dead body being taken down from the cross, you know that they're dejected. They're completely uh, without hope. They're completely in a state of despair because everything that they had hoped for and dreamed of and wished and believed about Jesus Christ, in that moment, they were all in complete despair and hopelessness. So what changed? Why, why did they dramatically go from being a disbanded group of disciples who were in complete discouragement and despair to being the most confident, bold witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the world has ever seen? Well, I can tell you what changed is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's the proof of the resurrection. How can we know that? Well, let me read this. It says that the apostles in the, uh, of Jesus Christ in the early church, they turned the world upside down through their witness and their boldness to proclaim one simple message. That is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has indeed been risen from the dead. This is what historian Peter Steinfeld said. Listen to what he said. He said, shortly after Jesus was executed, his followers were suddenly galvanized from a baffled and cowering group into a people whose message about a living Jesus and a coming kingdom preached at the risk of their own lives eventually changed an empire. Something happened, but exactly what? And we know what happened. Is that the reason that the disciples went from being a disbanded, cowardly, discouraged group of people to being the most bold, proclaimers and witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because they had experienced firsthand that Jesus was indeed alive. Now, here's the question. Will someone die for what they believe to be true? Absolutely. People die all the time for things that they believe to be true. But here's the question you have to ask about the disciples. Will anyone die for what they know is a lie? Will anyone willingly lay their life down if in their heart they know that what they're dying for is a bold-faced lie, a conspiracy, a fabrication? 
And the answer to that is simple, no. No one is going to go to their deaths proclaiming something that they know in their heart is a lie and that is false. And that's what sets the disciples apart in this case of the resurrection. It's because if this whole story about the disciples would stealing the body of Jesus just to try to keep his memory alive or try to keep this message of resurrection alive, if they were the ones who conspired to steal his body and to create this entire conspiracy and to create, fabricate this entire false narrative that would have uh, you know, been taught from the, from the point of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then they would have been the ones who knew more than anybody else that it was a lie. And yet, how can you explain how every single disciple, almost all of the apostles except John, who, who was, they attempted to martyr John and, and kill him even though he survived, but almost every one of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ, went to their death willingly proclaiming this one simple message, Jesus Christ is alive. And so that is one of the great validations that they knew that it was true because they were willing to die for that which was true. If it was a lie and they were part of some fabricated story, they never would have gone to their death. Somebody would have eventually said, look, I'm not going to die for this because we all, know it's, uh, we all know it's fake. We all know it's a lie. We've all been fooling ourselves. I'm not going to go to my death and die this painful, terrible, suffering death for something that I know is not true. But that's not the testimony of the apostles. They were radically changed and they were willing to die. Now, I have two more reasons and we're going to wrap up. Reason number six is that <clears throat> we see that this, the message of the gospel, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and that he has been resurrected from the grave, that he ascended into heaven, that he is alive today to offer us eternal life and to offer a relationship with God through him. This message of good news, okay, it has the supernatural power to transform lives, to save sinners, and to heal the hardest hearts. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. From the very beginning, the message of the gospel that turned the whole world upside down has reached so many people and completely transformed their life. Saved sinners who were just completely rebellious in it and had hatred toward God, and yet their life gets completely turned around. When you think about the, the hardest hearts and the most hardened people in the world and how their hearts are healed and that God has reached them through this message and how they are completely changed and healed and transformed, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you explain this supernatural power of transformation other than the fact that Jesus is indeed alive? The Bible says that for if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the transforming power of the gospel. So let me give you a couple of examples, historical examples. And I wish I had time to, I mean, there are so many amazing testimonies about how the power of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living Lord, has transformed so many people's lives. But I'm just going to give you three this morning that I think will be interesting. Number one is the Apostle Paul himself. Think about it. The Apostle Paul, the great enemy of the church, he's persecuting the believers. He's, he's dragging Christians to prison. He's, he's affirming their death and execution. He hates the church. He hates the people, the followers of Jesus Christ. He's going to Damascus to bring more Christians to prison. He has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we know the rest of the story. The Apostle Paul becomes the greatest missionary, one of the greatest preachers that the world has ever seen. As he, he is called to go reach the Gentiles and he, God uses him in such an amazing way. He writes about two-thirds of the New Testament. He becomes the greatest champion of the gospel, the greatest ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you explain someone like the Apostle Paul? I want to talk to you about John Newton. Many of you probably have sang the, the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, many, many times. It's the most famous Christian hymn in the world. You can go to any country in the world and in any different language, and that, that tune, that hymn is recognizable all over the world. And it was written by a man named John Newton. Let me tell you a little bit about John Newton. You know, sailors, he was a sailor. He grew up in, in the lifestyle uh, of sailors, and, and they're, they're known for their, their debauchery and their sinful lifestyles. But it, it is said of John Newton that he had a reputation for, for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery that even shocked most sailors. So he was, he was the worst of the worst when it came to this type of lifestyle. Newton was a blasphemer. He was a slave trader. He captained ships that would, that would go and kidnap people and bring slaves across the Atlantic, and he would trade human lives. I mean, you're talking about the lowest of the low that you can get. And this was who John Newton really was. He was, the, he was a devil of a man. He took sin and immorality and cruelty to extreme levels, okay? But then in March of 1748, something happened in John Newton's life. They, they, they ran into a tempest. They ran into this terrible storm. And they fought this storm for many, many days. And, and John Newton is hanging on. I think it says after 10 or 11 days, he's just basically hanging on for dear life. He, he's, he's accepted the fact they're all going to die in this storm. And it says that that night he was confronted with his death and he was confronted with, his, with God's righteous judgment. And it says that he called out to God that night in faith. Newton said of that day, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of the troubled and the deep waters. So John Newton was saved that day. Now his life didn't immediately change, but he began to his his, his life began to be transformed as he, he was now in a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And so now he began to have this ministry in London where he was uh, helping the poor. And uh, he joined up forces with a man named William Wilberforce. And if you know anything about William Wilberforce, he was a champion for the freedom of the slaves in England. And he was a champion for anti... He wanted to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. And, and John Newton joined forces with William Wilberforce. And, and they were a huge prime movers in the abolition of slavery. And um, John Newton became, became a preacher and a teacher, and he began to write hymns. And he just became a champion of the faith. And so we see that Newton never ceased to be amazed by God's grace. Um, and this is what he told his friends as he got older. And this is kind of uh, just a beautiful picture. And eventually he did write the hymn Amazing Grace, as many of you know. But, but listen to John Newton. As he's getting older, he says, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. That's the testimony of John Newton. How do you explain such a transformational, radical change in a person's life? Going from one of the coarse, most vile slave traders to being a champion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and going to set slaves free and be one of the greatest advocates for abol the abolition of slavery 
in the United Kingdom that the world has ever seen. So God can change lives. And I want to share one more man's testimony with you today because I think this is one of the most profound testimonies that you'll ever hear. This is Dr. Mike Evans. If you know anything about Dr. Mike Evans, he is now the founder of Friends of Zion. Uh, the Jerusalem Prayer Team is the largest prayer group. I think he has over 50 million followers on Facebook. He is an advocate for the people of Israel. But if you've ever heard his testimony, I'm going to try to share the shortened version of his testimony the best that I can today. But Dr. Mike Evans grew up in a home. His mother was Jewish. His father was a raging alcoholic. He said his father did not believe that he was his son. He always accused his mother of being... Um, uh, that, that Mike was an illegitimate son, that his mother was some type of a whore. He said that uh, his father would come home on Friday nights drunk and he would beat his mother, just, just relentlessly abuse his mother. His father would, would abuse him. As Mike was a young boy, he said he can remember being stripped down completely naked. His father would take extension cords and just, just beat him and, and leave these extreme whelps and, and marks on his body just extremely abusive relationship. He said all of this kind of culminated uh, to the point when he was 11 years old that one night his father came home. His father didn't even acknowledge him as his son. And he was, he was beating his mother. And here's this young boy, 11 years old. He had a stuttering problem. He, is, he was uh, ridiculed at school. Uh, he, he had so many fears as a, as a young boy, as you can imagine. And that night... He stood up for his mother. He saw his father beating his mother, and he finally said, stop it, to his dad. Well, his dad rushed up the stairs, picked Mike up, his 11-year-old son, and strangled him to nearly his death. Mike said that he, he woke up as an 11-year-old boy. He woke up in a, in a pool of his own vomit in a dark room. His dad had just left him there, lifeless on the floor. And he said this. He said, I was so angry. I was so angry at God that I was still alive. He hated his life so much. He hated his father so much. He hated, his, he hated God so much that he said, I just wanted to die. I was hoping that that would be my last breath. But that very night as an 11-year-old boy, Mike said that he's laying there in the dark and he said that there was a light that shone on him in that room. And he said at first he was afraid that his dad was coming back in there to, to finish him off. But he said as he looked through his fingers, just peeping through the cracks in his fingers to see this light, he said the first things that he saw were the hands of Jesus. And he said he saw the nail prints right here in his hands. And he said he saw the two hands of Jesus open up, reaching toward him. And he said he looked into the eyes of Jesus. And he said they were the most beautiful eyes that you could ever imagine. And he said Jesus said two things to him that night. Here he is, an 11-year-old son, just brutally abused by his own father. And Jesus said, called him son. And he said, I love you. And I have a purpose for your life. And Mike said that was the first time in his life that he had been called son. That was the first time in his life that he can remember being told that he was loved and that he belonged and that God had a purpose for his life. And he said he wept tears of joy the rest of that night knowing that God had saved him, that God loved him. And that from that moment on, Mike was never the same. He still had a very difficult life growing up. But later he moved to Israel. He's become one of the greatest ambassadors, Christian ambassadors 
for the people of Israel. He, he founded the Friends of Zion Museum in, in Jerusalem today where you can go where it shows how so many Christians historically have been friends of the Jewish people and have helped them through some of their most uh, difficult times. He's met with ambassadors and ministers and heads of state and presidents and God has used him in just such a mighty way. But the greatest thing about Mike's testimony that you'll see is that Mike was able to forgive his own father. That he was able to forgive the man who brutally beat him nearly to his own death. How do you explain that kind of transformation unless you understand that there is a God that has revealed himself to us through his son Jesus Christ who has been resurrected from the grave and he is alive today to meet us where we are and to offer us a relationship, a restoration to God the Father. And that he is in the business of saving sinners, healing the hardest hearts and transforming lives. This is one of the greatest reasons why I believe and again, I could, I could share story after story after story with you today about people's lives that have been changed by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm going to share with you my very last reason why I believe my Redeemer lives and it's simply this. I spoke to Him this morning. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I spend time with Him. He speaks to me through His Word. He speaks to me through that still, small voice as I quiet myself before Him. He, he overwhelms and floods my heart with love and peace. His presence is, is tangible. His presence in my life is real. I, I'm not making this up. This is my personal testimony that I have a relationship with Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Who can have a relationship with a dead man? It's impossible to have a relationship with someone who is dead, but my Lord Jesus Christ he is alive, and He is alive today to offer you the very same relationship. He's alive today to offer you restoration unto God. He's alive today to offer you forgiveness and freedom from sin. He's alive today to come into your life and transform your life. He's alive today to pour out His love and presence in, into your heart so that you know and that you belong and that you have that peace that surpasses all understanding that you are in a relationship with the living God, I spoke to Jesus this morning. I talk to Him all the time. I walk with Him. I talk with Him. He speaks to me. That's because He's alive. And that's because He, he has offered me a relationship. Listen, at the end of the day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about relationship. There's this great song uh, sung by Nicole C. Mullen. And, and she says that in that song. And that's really... It resonates with me every time I hear it because she says, I know my Redeemer lives. The tomb is empty. I know my Redeemer lives. I've got to tell everybody, I know my Redeemer lives. And she says, I spoke with Him this morning. You see, we can know that Jesus is alive because we can have a real, living, vibrant relationship with the risen Savior. And that's what I want to close in, uh, close with today, is simply by asking you a few simple questions. Have you experienced this resurrection power of Jesus Christ? Has he, has he transformed your life? Do you have a relationship with the living Lord? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Listen, if you, you know it if you do.
If there's any doubt there, you probably don't. Because the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ is the most intimate, personal relationship I have in life. It's more intimate than my relationship with my wife and with my children and with my, my dad and with my siblings and with my church family. If you, don't, if you have any doubt or question about a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you probably, you may not have a relationship with Him. And it's, it's going to be the central, most um, important, the, the realest relationship that you will have in your entire life. And so the last question I want to ask you is that do you have the hope and the joy and the peace of knowing that you possess eternal life in Jesus Christ? Listen, in these days when death is knocking at our door and we have things like COVID-19 out there that's got everybody so afraid and so terrified. As a Christian, let me just tell you honestly, what's the worst that can happen? What if I catch COVID-19 and I get really bad sick? What if one of my loved ones catches it? What if somebody I know dies? What if I die from this virus? You know what the Bible says? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear. Because Jesus Christ is alive, and because He lives, He has promised that all who believe in Him also will live. You can have that promise. You can have that peace. You can have that assurance today. And I pray today that if you don't, that today will be the day that you come to the realization that your Redeemer, He lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for all those who are out there today, I pray your blessing and peace. And I pray that there be anyone else listening to this message this morning, that if there's any doubt in their heart, Lord, that they are... Um, that they're outside of fellowship or outside of a relationship with you, God, that today would be the day that they trust in you, that they believe in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and they begin to be transformed, that they are healed in their heart, and they enter into a relationship, God, that is the greatest relationship on earth because we have a living Lord who offers us a relationship with a living God through your son, Jesus, and that's my hope and prayer, Lord, not just for today, but for every day beyond this, that your church and your people will be bold like the apostles to share the very same simple message with the world. Jesus is Lord, and he is alive. Do you know him? Will you come to him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.